0: Well, let's, uh, let's open a word of prayer and we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time of the year. Um, first of all, getting ready to celebrate the birth of your Son into our world. And we're also grateful for this time of the year as we look forward to the new year because we can reflect on this year. And how faithful you've been to all of us. So we exalt you in that. We're grateful for the the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I do pray that you'll be with us uh, during communion time, the fellowship meal, the teaching times. I pray for the koinonia fellowship that the Holy Spirit brings to your people. Not just with you, which is the most important, but with one another pray for a deep spirit today of koinonia. And we also are very grateful for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit whereby we can understand the things of God, even the deeper things. As the Spirit takes the deep things of God and makes them known to us through a very special ministry called Illumination. Illumination. So in preparation for that ministry, Lord, we're going to take a few moments of private confession, not to uh, restore f- uh, position, but sometimes we can do things that alienate you in terms of fellowship, and we, we would seek not for that to happen today because we want to be with you. And we want to receive from you. So in preparation for that ministry, we're going to take a few moments and exercise 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. We remain, Lord, grateful for your full provision for us its comprehensiveness not only in terms of bringing us to you through justification but also through the resources you've given us to grow in you through progressive sanctification uh, including uh, restoration of broken fellowship. We do ask that your name would be lifted up and glorified today in all the meetings that are taking place um, like the ladies' ministries meeting uh, this afternoon, and just a lot of wonderful things going on. So we lift up all of these things in Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles, if we could, to 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Um as we're moving our way verse by verse through 2 Thessalonians, we've come to this verse here, which says, "...let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." Paul the Apostle had been kicked out of Thessalonica by the unbelieving Jews. Paul had planted the church there, ministered amongst the Thessalonian brand new Christians. And Paul is pushed down south into Corinth and it's there he gets wind or word of a forgery that had come into Thessalonica Indicating that the day of the Lord, and as you're going to see in a moment, that's the tribulation period, has come. So they were, as you can tell from verse 2, you notice I've got the word shaken underlined. They were shaken to the core of their beings because Paul had taught them something different in the first letter. And when he was with them um, in the... Uh, When he planted the church there in their midst. So he had taught them that they would escape the wrath of God. And now they get a forged letter saying you're in the wrath of God. You're in the tribulation period. So Paul had told them no you're here in the church age. But they got this letter indicating no we're here. And. Paul says, whatever you received is not of the Lord, and it didn't even come from me anyway. Because if you were in the day of the Lord, i.e. the tribulation period, you would see five things which you're not seeing. The first is something called the apostasia. And from this point on, uh, in the outlines that I give you, for an English translation, I'm gonna be translating that as the departure. You have not seen the departure. And the reason we've drilled down on this, and we're gonna, this is our last time dealing with this issue in this study, uh, cause we're almost finished with our expansive treatment on this, But the reason we've gotten into this is there's basically two views on it. Is this a departure from the Word? As in, doctrinal apostasy. I talked you through some of the problems associated with that view. Or is it, which is the view I lean towards, is it a departure from the world? Meaning, the apostasia, or the departure, is actually a synonym for the rapture of the church. And the reason this has become a big deal is the departure comes first, according to verse 3. Notice proton translated first. Which means that the pre-tribulational view of the rapture must be right at the top of the screen there. Because Paul is saying the rapture occurs first before the day of the Lord. So that's why this particular view is so that I'm sharing with you is so contested. Um, I've sort of put it together in 10 points, which is a little booklet which is available for you um, on the table on your way out. If you haven't picked up one already. And it's basically there I've given you ten reasons why I think the physical departure view is correct. Those are, and be patient with me, this is the last time you'll have to hear this summary, I think. Um, There have always been doctrinal departures, so how could another doctrinal departure be some definitive sign for the end? Number two, 2 Thessalonians was an early letter where Paul isn't dealing with the last day's apostasy of the church. Number three, it doesn't just say departure, it says the departure. Meaning it must be referring to something that Paul taught them earlier, i.e. the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. Number four, both the noun apostasia and the verb form aphistomy can mean a physical departure. And so when you have a word that goes different directions, you develop the meaning by looking at what does it mean here? Not what does it mean somewhere else, but what does it mean here? And that took us to number 6 and 7, where I think both the extended context, the two Thessalonian letters together, which were written back to back, and the immediate context refers to the rapture. Why doesn't Paul just say harpazo? That would have clinched the deal. Well, because Paul's reviewing material here. And when you're reviewing material, you don't just repeat... Um, the vocabulary that you used when you're introducing concepts. The early English Bible translations there, number five, put the departure in the English translation. So that would open the door for a physical departure view. And then I talked you through a number of scholars that hold to the physical departure view. So it is a minority view, but it's held by a lot of, Notables. From there, what we started last time is I went through the objections because there are objections to this. We covered objections one, two, three and four. So if you're interested in learning about those objections and how I think they're overcome, um, last week's study on this will be helpful. But we just barely got to this one here. Number five, here's the fifth and final objection to this. Um, The fifth and, and final objection to this particular view, and I want to make sure I've got my page numbers right here, is as follows. Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that they had not already miss the rapture. As I'll show you in a minute, that's what they think is happening in verses 2 and 3. Because they mistranslate day of the Lord for the day of Christ, which changes the whole meaning, as I'll show you. Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that they had not already missed the rapture. Therefore, it would be incomprehensible for the passage to read, the rapture cannot have happened unless the rapture happens first, is what they're saying. So basically what they do is they try to, and it, you know, a lot of times these, these people are on radio or they're being interviewed. And it's not really a format where you can go in depth on this issue the way we're doing it here. And they they don't hold to the physical departure interpretation. And so they just try to debunk it as fast as they can in the mind of the listener. And so what they, they start to say, it's almost like a mantra. You know, it's almost like congregational singing when you listen to them. They're saying if the physical departure view is true, then what we're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. And they say it a second time. Well, what you're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. And you just keep repeating it over and over again, and um, people think, well, I guess the physical departure view must be wrong because what they're saying is, shall we all do the refrain, the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. Okay. Okay. Very good. We should add that to our hymnal. <laughs> but we wouldn't do that because it's a wrong perspective. But uh, this is a, this is the kind of thing uh, Amir Serfadi will say, even though a lot of the things that Amir Serfadi says I appreciate. Um, Jan Markell on her radio show, even though I appreciate a lot of her teaching, will, will bring people on. You know, to debunk for what, I don't know what her motive is exactly, but to debunk the physical departure view, and they'll sit on our radio show, what do you, what do you think of this view? And she'll interview all of these so-called experts, Amir Surfati being one, and there's certain pastors that they bring on, and they say, well that view can't be true, because if it were true, They would be saying the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. So they'll say it doesn't even make sense grammatically to argue for the physical departure view. Now why do they say that? Because they're relying on the King James Version. Which by the way is a very good translation. But the King James Version is not inerrant. The only thing that's inerrant are the original manuscripts. Which we no longer have. So here at Sugarland Bible Church we are not King James only. Uh we might be King James mostly, <laughs> or some, but there's a lot of people out there that think, you know, the Apostle Paul used the King James Version, which was created in what, sixteen eleven. So here is um, how the King James Version, here I'm using the New King James Version, uh translates these verses not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come well that's not what the NASB says it doesn't say day of Christ it says the day of the Lord Let no man, verse 3, in any way deceive you. By the way, those brackets um, are my addition (laughs) to what the King James is saying, just so you know how they're using the King James to debunk the physical departure view. Let no one in any way deceive you for that day. Now, what day would that be? It would, Verse 3, it would refer back to the day in verse 2, the day of Christ or the rapture. So they think verse 3 says, Let no man in any way deceive you, for that day the rapture shall not come first unless there come a falling away first. And we believe that the falling away, at least I believe, that the falling away is the rapture. And that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So they say the physical departure view can't be right because you can't refer to the rapture twice in verse 3 if the falling away is the rapture and that day is the rapture, because that day uh, is harking back to the day of Christ in verse 2, then basically what you're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. And that would make no sense. So because we're kind of living in the soundbite culture, where people are not, they don't really have the patience to wade through lengthy arguments and all you got to do is watch a 30-second thing on Instagram or Rumble or YouTube or whatever, and that sways everybody because that's what kind of culture we're living in. Uh, Sadly, that spirit invades the church, and you have a whole generation of so-called Christians that really don't want to sit under in-depth Bible teaching. So they're swayed by something like this. Particularly when it comes from an influencer, right? Um, uh, the, I guess the standard word for that today is a virtue signaller. So so and so is on 800 radio stations, and so my goodness, she, in this case, Jan Markel, is bringing on these experts. One of them being a mere Surfati saying the Rapture can't happen until the Rapture happens. Boy, boy, they must be right. Why in the world would I listen to a guy from Sugarland, Texas that's on zero radio stations? Right, we are on a couple, but it's not—it's not 800. We'll see what God does with it. But our goal here is not to be popular, is it? Um, It's—it's really to get to the truth. Truth and popularity sometimes go different directions. I hope we understand that. There are people that can pack out auditoriums and they can get their books up to the top of the Amazon list. Um, and by the way, one of the ways they do that is if it's like a mega ministry, they, they purchase their own books from the publisher. And, and then that allows... The, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding about this. That allows the Amazon numbers to go way up. Look, it, we've just sold X amount of books. and They don't tell the public that, well, we, we're the ones that bought the book. Okay? So just be careful about all this like, like and subscribe, bestseller, all that kind of thing that goes on there. So if someone thinks someone is an influencer or a virtue signaler and because they don't really want to sit through long-winded arguments Um, they're persuaded by something like this. The rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. Now, look how the meaning completely changes if you're reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Because it is true, the day of Christ can refer to the rapture elsewhere in Paul's writings. But the meaning completely shifts if you're following the New American Standard Bible which does not translate that as the day of Christ, but it translates it as the day of the Lord. So if that latter translation is correct, I put in brackets um, what I think is the correct meaning. And if you have the correct meaning, the alleged contradiction in these verses disappears if you hold to the physical uh, departure view. Paul says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that not the day of Christ, but the day of the Lord, tribulation period, has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it... Now it would go back to verse 2, the day of the Lord, right? So it is another reference to the tribulation period. Let no one in any way deceive you for it, tribulation period, will not come unless the apostasia, which we think, at least I think, is the rapture, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition or destruction. Well, if if it's the day of the Lord instead of the day of Christ, then the physical departure view makes perfect sense. There is no inherent contradiction in those verses. And what Paul is saying is, you are not in the tribulation period, although you have received a letter from us indicating you are in the tribulation period. And the reason you are not in the tribulation period is because the departure, synonym for the rapture, hasn't come first, which is a necessity that has to happen before the tribulation period begins. So why am I convinced, first of all, that the day of the Lord is a reference to the tribulation period? Well, all you gotta do is go back to the beginning of the Bible and find the first reference to the word day. Because it says here, the day of the Lord. The very first reference in the Bible to the word day is, it's the Hebrew word yom. It's found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 5. It says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was, what comes first? Evening. And then what comes second? Morning. Do you see how the rapture would violate that? Because the rapture is not an evening, nighttime event. So this must be talking about something subsequent to the rapture. So that is one of the reasons I don't think you should translate that word day to the day of Christ because that would put the morning before the evening. And the very first reference to the word day in Scripture, the Hebrew word yom, puts the evening before the morning. So what is the day of the Lord? It's the seven-year tribulation period, the whole thing. That's the evening that's when God is pouring out his wrath on this planet. Now the evening, which will be manifested in the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the golden bowl of wrath judgments, it's all God's wrath. Um, I'm actually going to be giving a, a paper on this tomorrow morning at the pre trips study group on against people that think we're going to be here for three-quarters of the tribulation. On the idea that the first three-quarters of the tribulation period are not God's wrath. Everything up to the last quarter is not God's wrath. God's wrath is not poured out till the final 25%. So the church is going to be here for three-quarters of the tribulation period. Comfort one another with these words. By the way, I'm so I'm so comforted by that. So I'm going to try to be given a paper on this Monday morning. If you guys can keep me in prayer tomorrow, about eight thirty nine, something like that. Prayer for traveling mercies. Got some some people from the church going. Um, I'll be back for Wednesday night Bible study though. So don't don't do too much mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So you've got the evening, the tribulation period. The whole thing is God's wrath. I mean, these people, these, these people are saying that when God destroys a quarter of the earth's population, that's not his wrath. I mean, if that's not his wrath, I really don't know what is. 25% of the world is, disappears under judgments that Jesus is causing by opening the seven-sealed scroll. Yeah, but it doesn't say Jesus is pouring out those judgments. The angels are doing them. Well, that would be like saying God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he signed the task to an angel. Genesis 19.22. i got to stop because I'm going to start giving you my whole paper on this. (laughs) So the evening is followed by the morning, right? What's the morning? The second advent of Jesus, the manifestation of the thousand-year kingdom. You say, well, how long is the thousand-year kingdom? Well, it's a thousand years. Yeah, but what's the real meaning? Okay, I'll give you the real meaning. It means a thousand years. And that kingdom is going to be followed by the eternal state. So do you see the pattern here? Paul doesn't, when he uses the expression day of the Lord, he it can't be the rapture first even though the rapture is first that he's talking about, because the evening comes first and then the morning comes second. If you put the rapture in there and try to make this sound like it's the day of Christ, then the day concept is lost. You'd have morning, evening, morning. But God is very clear in Genesis 1 verse 5. It starts with the evening and then comes, then comes the morning. Now, why am I so convinced that Paul is talking about here not the day of Christ, but the day of the Lord? Well, when you look at the Greek manuscripts, I've tried to look at them, they don't read day of Christ. Christ is Christos. Lord is Kyrios. It's a different Greek word. So I'm not completely sure why the King James translators went this direction. And even beyond that, Paul earlier has got everybody's attention in his first letter focused on not the day of Christ, but the day of the Lord. He doesn't even use the day of Christ in the Thessalonian letters elsewhere, but he does use the day of the Lord. He says in First Thessalonians five two and three, for you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. See how it's a. See how the day of the Lord is a negative event. That that is not the rapture. When a thief breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you're caught unawares, is that? Let's just take a little test here. Is that a happy event or a? Sad or frightening event. It's, it's frightening. So how in the world could that be the rapture? Because the rapture is the blessed, blessed hope. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, peace and security, for when they are saying peace and homeland security, whoops, that's my own interpretation, then sudden destruction, just like a thief in the night, comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Once the contractions start, um, you can't. The husband driving his wife to the hospital says, "Well, we need to stop at Starbucks." I mean, it's the baby's coming. And so that's the wrath of God breaking forth on planet Earth. And when it says they shall not escape, it's a double negative, meaning once it starts, it's just like a pregnancy. You can't, it's irreversible. So that is what the day of the Lord is. It's a horrific time period. The evening, followed by the morning, the manifestation of the kingdom of God at the end of that seven year time period. So if what I'm saying is accurate, then essentially what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2.2 is that you should not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, the tribulation period has started or has come. Well, why, Paul, should we assume the Thessalonians were saying that the tribulation period has not come? Because Paul is saying if the tribulation period has come, these five things would be a reality. The departure, the advent of the lawless one, the removal of the restrainer, the destruction of the lawless one, the destruction of the lawless one's followers. And what Paul is getting at is you haven't seen anything like that. And two of the things Paul talks about, I think they're in parallel arrangement to each other, is the rapture. The departure hasn't happened yet. In other words, you're still here, Thessalonians. And as long as you're here, the day of the Lord or the tribulation period can't start. By the way, that's exactly what God, the angel told Lot, who came under God's delegated authority to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, verse 22, the angel said to Lot, Get out of here, because I cannot do anything until you're removed. The angel didn't say, I will not do anything until you're removed. He said, I cannot do anything until you're removed. In other words, it's counter to the purposes of God to pour out his wrath on his own people. So you have to be removed, you have to depart before, the, before I can destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot, as you know, uh, got out of the city. Uh, his wife looked back, as my wife says, Lot's wife was assaulted, uh, so to speak. <laughs> But Lot, the believer, and by the way, Lot was a believer. 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says that, calls him a righteous man. He was positionally righteous. It says it three times. So once he was out of the way, then the judgment could come. And Paul is basically saying the same thing. The tribulation period can't start unless there are five things um, in operation. And two of those things is the rapture. The departure hasn't happened, which I already told you was coming. And number two, once the rapture happens and God's people are removed, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church disappears. And that allows the man of lawlessness to come on the scene. So basically what Paul is saying is you're not in the tribulation period because you don't see these five things, two of which relate to the rapture. If, if this were the day of the Lord, the rapture would have already happened. That's, that's the point that Paul is getting at. So to reach that conclusion, I talked you through ten reasons for that and we went through the five major um, objections to it, and showed you how those can be uh, overcome. So although I've spent like nine lessons on this, I think it is, um, we're now finally departing from the departure <laughs> discussion, and we're actually moving on to the rest of the verse. Look at that. So this next one will take 12 months. No, I'm just kidding. This, the, the other ones will go by much faster because they're not really debated the way the apostasia is debated. So Paul goes on in verse 3 and he says, Let no man in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. Which basically means if the departure comes first then the pre-tribulational view is correct because of that adjective first, Which means you can hold to the rapture as your blessed hope. You don't have to have a bunch of ambiguity in your mind about it. You can actually develop certainty on it. Titus 2 verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I like how the late Ed Heinson uh, said it. He goes, We're not looking for the undertaker. <laughs> We're looking for the upper taker. Uh, and he has a really funny illustration about how as you get older, you have more surgery and plastic and metal. And he says all that plastic stuff and metal is going to be left behind. And he said something like, the problem is I grow older. I think more is going to be left in that pile than what, <laughs> what? <laughs> what actually goes up. So the departure comes first. Then comes number two. The advent of the lawless one. So you'll notice there in verse 3 that the lawless one, uh, sometimes called the Antichrist or the beast, he has a number of different names. You'll notice that he's called a man. The man of lawlessness is revealed. It's the Greek word anthropos where we get the word, you know, Anthropology. Uh, the study of man. When John describes the Antichrist, uh, under the false prophet ministering the mark of the beast system, which is yet coming, although we can certainly see a lot of movement in that direction, it's not here yet. It says there, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. Notice the global nature of this. Uh, this is going to cover the whole world. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the, the name of the beast or the number of his name. I mean, it's kind of obvious where the world is being psychologically conditioned to move into this system. Here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It is that of a man. See that? Anthropos. It is that of a man. His number is 666. So there is another passage showing you that the Antichrist is an actual human being. I mean, he is just as physical, literal, and real as was Judas 2,000 years ago as was even Jesus himself. Because he will be the opposite or in the place of the prefix anti-Christ. And another way to demonstrate that he is a man, and the reason I'm bringing this up is when I got saved and got interested in eschatology, I was listening to all the wrong people. One of the guys I was listening to, because I didn't know any better, was Harold Camping. You guys know about him, right? And he had this radio show called Family Something Hour. And he's the guy that set set a couple of dates, remember? Around the year 2000. My students at the College of Biblical Studies, when all of that was in its heyday, I think Camping has gone on to his reward, I don't think he's alive anymore. Um, they would ask me, well, what do you think about Harold Camping? And I would say, well, just wait here two minutes. And I would go up to my office, and I had a book from Harold Camping saying Jesus is coming back in 1994. And I say, here's what I think of Camping's prediction, holding, holding up the book. In other words, the man it was, was completely wrong about 1994. And he has to be wrong because God never gave us a date, right? So he was wrong about all the other dates as well. So, and I'm, I'm not even sure why I brought all that stuff up, but anyway. Um, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, oh, I know why I brought it up. I was listening to Camping and he was saying the Antichrist is not going to be a man, uh he's going to be a spirit there's a there's a spirit of the antichrist but he's not actually going to be a human being and you know with every lie there's always a little bit of truth to it to give it validity john does talk about in 1 john 4 2 and 3 the spirit of the Antichrist in the last days. In other words, before the Antichrist shows up, the world will be infiltrated by the spirit of the Antichrist. So Camping was using that passage, but he wasn't giving the whole. what I would consider the whole truth. Yes, there's a spirit of the Antichrist in the world. I think Paul's going to even mention that in verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but that doesn't mean there won't be an individual lawless one the spirit of lawlessness will be preceded by the man of lawlessness the spirit of antichrist will be preceded by the antichrist that's why it keeps calling him a man and jesus is going to take him and deposit him into the lake of fire when he comes back It says in Revelation 19, verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his name. These two, beast and false prophet, were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. That happens in Revelation 19 right when Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period to establish his kingdom. And then as you can see from the chart, a thousand years pass. And how long is a thousand years? It's a thousand years. I think John says it six times, that the kingdom will last a thousand years. So I don't I don't know what everybody's debating anymore. I mean, he says 1,000 years. It's like looking at your GPS and it says this or that. Well, I just don't believe that. Well, if you decide you don't want to believe it or take it literally or whatever, then you get lost. That's why everybody's confused about prophecy is they don't look at the GPS. They just come in with their own understanding of how they think the world should be. But the Lord tells us six times it's going to last a 1,000 years. And what's interesting is at the end of that thousand years, the beast and the false prophet are still in the lake of fire. They didn't evaporate or incinerate. It says in Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil who deceived them. See, God keeps Satan around long enough for God to use Satan to advance God's purposes. Because there's a final purpose for Satan to reveal the rebellion that's happening in the hearts of the mortal millennial earth dwellers. That's why, that's why when Jesus comes back, the beast and the false prophet go into the lake of fire, Satan goes into the abyss. Because God has one more purpose for Satan. The devil is God's devil. God in his sovereignty uses Satan constantly for his own purposes. So don't get too impressed with Satan because the only reason he's around is to serve God's purposes. So now the purpose is done and God takes Satan and puts him where the beast and the false prophet are because the three should be together for all eternity, right? Because the Trinity shouldn't be separated. Because what these guys have tried to pull off... Guys and Satan is a satanic trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which can't be divided. So it's, it's very fitting that Satan would join the other members of his unholy trinity throughout all eternity. But he comes in a thousand years later because God is, has one more purpose for Satan at the end of the millennium. You read about all of that. In Revelation 20 verse 9, and it says this: The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. See that? It doesn't say where the beast and the false prophet used to be. And the, and then it, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why? Do, why forever? Why forever and ever? How come um, the Beast and the false prophet didn't disintegrate or get annihilated over the course of a thousand years. Because the beast and the false prophet are human beings. That's why. And a human being has a soul which is designed by God to live for how long? Forever. That's why you can't have a situation where these guys just disappear. Because the beast or the Antichrist is clearly called a man, Anthropos, here in our passage in Revelation 13, verse 18. And all of the prefigurements of the coming Antichrist, and there are some prefigurements of him, um, he's already been here in the form of a dress rehearsal many times. He was here, I'll try to show you once we get to verse 4, in the form of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, He was also here, according to Daniel 9.26, as Titus of Rome. But those two guys, if you look at their lives, foreshadow the work of the future Antichrist. Now, both Antiochus and Titus of Rome were human beings. So why wouldn't the Antichrist be a future human being? In fact, the ultimate type, in my opinion, of the coming Antichrist is Nimrod, who was the head of the World Economic Forum, right? The Tower of Babel. We've got to have a one-world system. And God disrupted it. Tower of Babel incident. And Nimrod was a person. So if all of the prefigurements of the Antichrist our people, why wouldn't the Antichrist be a person? So that's the significance of chapter 2, verse 3, when the man of lawlessness is called just that, a man. He will be an actual human being. And notice what else he is called here. He is called the man of lawlessness. Um, In Greek, we call that an alpha privative. I think it's what it's called. I've paid a lot of tuition money to learn these words. I gotta use them on somebody. The only people that listen to me in my house are my cats, and I'm not sure they <laughs> they fully understand what I'm saying, but a I mean they do listen to me just they think I'm a little bit off my rocker, which I, I am, no doubt. But when you have an alpha privative, you have the first letter of the Greek language, alpha, negating the rest of the word, right? So it's like how we use the word atheist. If someone says they're an atheist, what they're doing is they're negating theism; they don't believe in God. Um, ah, millennialist—someone who does not believe in the thousand-year kingdom. The A is just like English; the A in front negates the rest of the word. Um, agnostic. The A in front of gnosis negates the word knowledge, where we get the word ignoramus. Now, keep that in mind, because a lot of people will say, well, I'm an agnostic. And everybody's like real impressed. Wow. And it's like, do you understand what you just said about yourself? You just you just called yourself an ignoramus uh, without knowledge. So you'll notice that with lawless, it's namos, that's the Greek word for law. The the alpha in front of it negates law. So it basically is saying when the man of lawlessness comes after the departure has already transpired, he, he will be totally lawless in the sense that, he will completely and totally reject God's principles and God's law. Anything that God has set up to uh, as a law, he will reject. And you see the spirit of the Antichrist in the world right now, right? Because you can't really get far into the Bible until you read the words male and female. And now we have a generation that thinks they can decide what gender there are, what they want to be, and we've got men going into the girls' bathroom. I mean, what is that? That is the spirit of the Antichrist. It is complete and total lawlessness. It attacks what God says on page one of his book. So he will be the man of lawlessness, anomia. And here's some examples of how he will be that man of lawlessness. This is from Daniel 7.25, where he's called the little horn. <clears throat> it says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the church. Whoops, doesn't say that. Wear down the saints. Don't be thrown by this uh, saints argument. Uh, Alex Jones of Infowars. Went on one of his deals about how the pre-trib rapture is fake and, and of course he says all that because he sells survival gear, right? <laughs> Alright. That's a lot of money comes from selling survival gear. No one's gonna buy your survival gear if people like us teach you're gonna escape the God's wrath. So he's like training people to like eyeball it with the Antichrist. And you need all this survival gear for it, for it. And some, some ministries say the Antichrist is not going to die through a normal bullet, so you have to get these copper bullets. It's like, it's like something out of um, the old werewolf-type movies. So Alex Jones, his main argument is it says saints. So, that, so it must be that the church is going to go through the tribulation period because the Bible says saints. Well, the truth of the matter is God's people were called saints long before the church existed. God's people are called saints in Psalm 149 verse 1, I think it is. You might want to double check me on that. It's in Psalm 149 verse 1 and Psalm 50 verse 5. And that was before the church ever existed. God's people were called saints. So after the church is gone, what are converts in the tribulation called? They're called saints. So that, that argument that Alex Jones uses proves basically nothing. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he, now watch this. He will intend to make alterations in times and law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time, the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. But notice what the little horn or the Antichrist does. He will intend to make alterations in times and law. Where do the times and the law come from? Come from God. Fourth day of creation, God sets up the times and the law, right? Then God said, Genesis 1 verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. This is day four, man is not created until day six. So man did not set up the times and the law, you see that? Because man wasn't around. You mean God set up this universe without consulting us first? I mean, who does he think he is? God or something? So there are certain principles that run the world that God set up. There's seasons, there's days, there's night, uh, there's years, there's a calendar system. And so when Daniel 7.25 says the little horn will intend to make alterations in, in law, and in law he's going to try to create a world acting as if God had nothing to do with how this world started and was designed. And you can see the spirit of the Antichrist doing that right now with this bathroom issue and male-female where people think that their gender is something that they decide on. By the way, um, there was a revolution that was going on on the other side of the pond around the same time as our American Revolution. When you study the American Revolution, it's very interesting. There's a lot of Biblicism and Bible. When you study the French Revolution, it was the exact opposite. It was a revolution where they wanted to enthrone reason. And one of the things that they did in the French Revolution is they got rid of the seven-day week work six days and rest on the seventh. They expanded the week to 10 days. Well, where did the seven-day week come from? It's God that put that together in creation. God says, I did it this way to the Jews to set up a work week for you. So the moment they switched it from seven to 10 days is the moment everything started to fall apart in their culture to the point where they had to get back to a normal work week. Because suicides went up, spousal abuse went up, high blood pressure, heart attacks went up, crime went up. Everything that can go wrong went wrong. And the reason is, in the French Revolution, they were trying to create a society acting as if God wasn't there at all. And it's, it's only God that knows how we need to function and operate. So when you live outside of your design, it's like using your some tool at your house like a hammer and you're trying to use it as a screwdriver when that's not why it was designed. And the other thing they tried to do is they tried to get the calendar system to change where it would no longer be B.C., before Christ, A.D., uh, what is it? Yeah, that whatever that is. Um, it sounds B C A D. I mean, that sounds kind of Christian to me when you hear, hear about that. Well, they wanted to start the year. I can't remember. I can't remember if they wanted to start it at year zero or year one. I think it was year zero, and they wanted to get that out of their calendar system because they wanted to act as if Jesus had nothing to do with splitting the calendar. You know, people say, well, I don't think Jesus is a historical figure. He split the calendar that we use (laughs) today. So the French Revolution tried tried to get rid of that. That is the kind of thing that the little horn is going to do where he's going to make alterations in times and law. You create a world as if God had nothing to do with it. So that's why he is called the man of lawlessness. Um, This is what it says of him in Daniel 11.36. The king, in context that's the Antichrist, will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. So his will is for himself. I think that's a little different than what Jesus role modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what Jesus said concerning the ordeal of the cross? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. I have a terrible time of testing and experiencing the wrath of God and actually temporarily for three hours driving a wedge within the triunity of God, if you can think about that. And Jesus said if there's some other way we can pull this off, Uh, let's do that, because I don't want to go through this. But then Jesus says, not my will, but thy will, or yours be done. Which is the opposite of what the Antichrist will do. It's all about him. He will do as he pleases. You know, this free will stuff is, is frightening when you think about it, that God has given us this. That I have volition. Meaning I can reject him if I want to. I can reject his principles and run my life the way I want to, but it won't end well because the smartest, wisest, most intelligent thing a human being could ever do with their free will is to do what with it? Give it right back to God. That's where knowledge starts, by the way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. So this is why he is called the lawless one. And then it talks about the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, there I've got in brackets the Greek noun apocalypsis. Uh, What is given there in in verse 3 is the verb, but they're both coming from the same root, apokalypsis, which means to unveil. And it's the same word, the noun anyway, used in the book of Revelation. Not the book of Revelations, right? But the book of Revelation. The Revelation, there's the word apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservants. So the whole disclosure of the end as given in the book of Revelation is a translation of this word, apocalypsis, which means to unveil. Yeah, but I was watching the History Channel and there was a a guy from Harvard and he was talking about how the book of Revelation is so hard nobody can understand it. Then why is the first word of the book the unveiling? It's not the veiling. It's the unveiling. So... When this word, verb form, is used in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, it's saying that the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is going to be unveiled. Right now he's veiled. But he is going to be unveiled at just the right time. Well, if he's going to be, why doesn't he just come out of the closet today? Because something is keeping him in the closet, right? That's the restrainer. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, which a passage we'll be getting to eventually. You know what restrains him so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Here it's talking about how he's going to be unveiled. Well, he can't be unveiled right now because something is stopping him. The restrainer. Do you know who the restrainer is? It's you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'll make that case when we get down to that. And only until that's taken out, just like Lot being taken out of Sodom, can the man of lawlessness, come forward. And once he comes forward, his first order of business is to make a covenant with the many for one week. Who's the many? The nation of Israel. Daniel 11 verse 33 calls the Jewish nation the many. And then as that is unfolding, we have now the seven-year tribulation period, which starts not with the rapture, but a peace treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. So the rapture does not start the tribulation period. The rapture releases the man of lawlessness to start the tribulation period by entering into the treaty of some kind with Israel. Oh, come on, pastor, are you telling me Israel is so needy that she's going to need a covenant from the Antichrist? That will never happen. You've been watching the news lately? Looks like Israel has got kind of her back up against the wall. And at this point, the rider on the white horse comes forth to conquer a synonym for the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1-4, through 4, and he brings not just peace to Israel but to the whole world. You say, well, how do you know he's bringing it to the whole world? Because when the second seal judgment is opened up, it says in Revelation 6 verse 4, it was granted to take peace from the earth. You can't take peace from the earth unless peace, the Greek word Irene, where we get the female name Irene, is established first. So what is preventing all of this from happening? The restrainer is, which is the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. I wanted so much to get through verse 3 today (laughs) because I wanted to talk about the son of destruction. Did you know that in the Bible there's only one other guy that's called the son of destruction? And so that's your job this week. Who is that guy? And why is he called the son of destruction? Because if you understand why he's called the son of destruction, you'll have a perfect blueprint concerning what the future Antichrist is going to do. So we'll pick it up with that last clause there in verse 3 next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for prophecy, eschatology. We're thankful that you've given us this subject matter. Help us uh, divide your word correctly. Uh, in these last days, so that we're not swept into confusion, we'll be careful, as the Thessalonians were. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said, "Amen." Amen. Happy mini intermission.